saw you on telly the other night. I did. <laughs> it was really nice. I'm always really happy when Father Brown returns. Father Brown actually is one of those shows that's on all the time. Yeah. And quite often I am one of those people who comes in and looks just through things that I might like to watch that are just comfortable and inspiring and warm yeah. and show on the whole people do nice things. And Father Brown is always one of my go-tos. That's very lovely. I I have heard that they, it's it's classic comfort watching, really, isn't it? Beautiful. Um, that you can engage with it or not engage with it, and if you don't engage with it, there's lovely backdrops of the Cotswolds and lovely costumes, and you know, and and always fantastic stories. Or if you do engage with it, you know, they they are there's a formula there, but they are enticing and tricky and they will keep you gripped for 45 minutes. Gorgeous. Yeah. So in honour of the return of Series 11 of yeah. Father Brown. Series 11, who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? We thought we would devote this episode of As the Actress Said to the Critic, with me the critic Sarah Crompton. And with me the actress Nancy Carroll. To talking about Father Brown. Yeah. <laughs> and which... Okay, so the first most basic thing is how do you pronounce the name of your character? Because I've never quite known. Lady Felicia. And she, you've been, you started in 2012 I, when it started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was uh, in the first episode. I did all four of the first four series. And then I sort of left on the proviso. I would come back and do one or two every series. Right. You know, with their permission. And so in this series, how many I only, do you do? Only just the one. Right. Just the one. How does so, it feel going back to it? It was Well, it's interesting. I mean, uh, I always want to be there for longer, but actually it's quite nice because what happens is you, when I was there all the time, you were then in the background a lot and part of the sort of reactionary crew of stuff. And it was, but it fitted with the kids being tiny. They would come and live with me in the Cotswolds and... And then it got to a point where, you know, always being booked up for it meant that you were sometimes missing out on other things. Right. And so it was a very sort of long series of conversations with my agent about was it good to stay in or not stay in? And um, but and I always think that going back to it is like coming home because yeah. it was such a formative experience for me. It was the first long regular part that I've ever played on screen it was a real privilege in as much as the writers who were writing the certainly the first five or six series and then it sort of there was a bit of a shift um and some of the directors started to come back less regularly and stuff but it was very much a sort of family thing certainly the, for the first five or six series and then but what happened was because because Chesterton's stories were very much at the heart of it, but they were being allowed to riff on the company that they had formed for both Sarah Kakusek and myself and Alex Price to a certain extent, uh, that because we were periphery characters around um, Mark Williams's Father Brown. Brilliant Father Brown. Yeah, that... that they knew that physical comedy and it was, there was stuff that we could do that they then began to write for. I'm not being very articulate. What I mean is that they were playing to our strengths. Right. And and so that the relationship that Sarika and I developed as Mrs. McCarthy and Lady F um, then, you know, found its place as a sort of thread through the stories. And so you felt, and that's the really the only time that I've had it on screen where the, the, the writers were writing for us. Right, lovely. This is what I'm saying, which is, feels like a massive, 
massive privilege. And, mm. you know, and so that was just glorious. And so it's like, you know, getting back into old boots, really, In you know. Yeah, and I think, well, I think in a funny way, it's 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 it sounds a bit dismissive, but it's slightly like that for a viewer. Yeah, that I I have, um, you know, that those uh, G.K. Chesterton stories are, you know, they've had so many incarnations. Yeah, yeah. Um, during uh, their their lifetime, you know, that so um, they they become different things. I mean, I think the first Father Brown. I ever saw was Alec Guinness, who does it yes. in a in a film, doesn't he? Yeah, and I think it was Kenneth Moore, maybe. Yes, he he did he did one of the early TV series yeah. versions of it. Yeah, which I yeah. don't remember actually. I don't think I did watch that. Um, but it, it's always that lovely thing of those those nineteen twenties nineteen thirties stories. Yeah, coming to life slightly in different incarnations, but always providing the same kind of sense of. Um, in a world that is chaotic and difficult, yeah. Here are crimes that can be solved, yes. And here are ethical values that can be preserved, yeah. Um, where good does triumph. And he's an extraordinary character, and I think he's very much Chesterton's creation, but with Mark's input as well. That that he is incredibly spiritual. That he doesn't. He isn't what you expect of a Catholic priest, but he's incredibly, he's representative of forgiveness and openness and periphery empathy. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, and that's, it's glorious. And, and as each story sort of throws something up, you, and also a man that survived the war, you know, he was a chaplain on the front line and he's seen horrendous things and he yeah. he's survived a war and he he's seen men at their best and at their worst and i think that's the moral of the story that there there is always room for forgiveness yeah. and the, and you know and it's it's a perfect mix there's always room for forgiveness that, that although we've been in 1953 probably for the best part of a decade and it's only just recently <laughs> yes. moved to 1954 there but the, the that the the 50s were ripe with all of that because it really was one era crowbarring out the previous to yeah. make room for new understanding of what life could be. Mm-hmm. And 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 it's brilliant for that, you know, that we're still reeling from the war, you know, that there's the there's the Windrush generation, there's there's the black market still very corrupt and alive. Um and it, there are a lot of people who were forgotten who came home to nothing. Yeah. You know, and so in terms of how people survive that. It's rich storytelling. Yeah. I always think, I think that's really interesting one because it hadn't occurred to me that if you look at, I always think Chesterton wrote Father Brown as kind of a brilliant advert of the Catholic Church because yeah. he, he does create a much, you're kind of very witty, wise, um, tolerant man. I think yeah. he's got slightly more tolerant in recent years but yeah, yeah. Chesterton's version. But he's he 1954 now, he has yeah, to be. Yeah. yeah, but he is tolerant and and... Um, but he has served in the war. And when I think about it, I love that, you know, what's always called the golden age of detective fiction. I love those books where, you know, um, Poirot, um, Marjorie Allingham's, uh, so Agatha Christie's Poirot, Marjorie Allingham's Campion, yeah. Dorothy L. Say's Peter Whimsey, they've yeah. all been in the war. 
Right. And it hadn't occurred to me till you said that. So they've all been at some levels yeah. damaged by war and by suffering. Yeah. And in fact, some of the whimsy stories, she directly deals with the idea that he's got PTSD, that he oh, really that he um he is suffering from the effects of war and, and his manservant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not that realistic. Yeah. But his manservant, Bunter, you know, looks after him and cares for him because he was his Batman in the trenches and he knows that yeah, yeah. Know, Peter is, is subject to these terrible shakes and so on. Yeah. And, and and actually that maybe is part of the appeal, that these are men who, and, who have seen enormous suffering yes. and then come back to make a better world. Yeah. And there is something interesting in that tension that they're, they're, they're setting wrongs to right all the time and trying to improve things. Yeah. Um, and when you read the books of the period, obviously it's kind of quite... Um, a fierce judicial system. You know, people, Poirot's always letting people go off to kill themselves because he wants to save them from the rope. Yeah. Which, of course, you know, is part of the justice system that they're operating against. Uh, yeah, sort of early dignitas yeah. mentality. But, all, but, it, yes. but, but, but I, I mean that in all seriousness. I think there is that, there's a real thread of, you know, you, the, the opposite of what the military required of people you know in terms of structure and and rules and you know being under the cosh literally about you know you weren't allowed to go AWOL you were in prison for getting AWOL and that sort of stuff and you you know going on the front line and seeing out your duty you come back and to have seen all that loss of life and not really understand what it was for particularly if you saw both wars in any way shape or form and I think that and you see systems for what they are, mm. which is that ultimately they're self-serving, you know, and 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 even the Catholic Church, in Father Brown's mind, the rules are there to be sort of fluffed around with, right. you know, yeah. which upsets when we have had characters, you know, representative of Catholicism come along. They're always sort of reprimanding him and slapping him on the wrists for not quite playing by the rules. But ultimately because his congregation his the people that he's looking out for take precedence over the rules of the of you know ultimately his boss and and i think that his ultimate boss he feels he's that his way of working he's more aligned with which is that that you know that and he does refer to the bible he does refer to that spirituality sporadically through all the stories yes no always i mean they've always got that kind of yeah they have always one of the things i like about that they do have a moral line. And as I say, I think that is immensely kind of valuable at a time where, where sometimes it's very hard to see the moral line. Yeah. And empathy, you know, yeah. alter, that everybody, you know, even someone we may consider to be deeply evil or whatever it is, they're written off by society. He looks for some light. He mm. looks for where the cracks are in order to heal them. And that's a that's a fantastic just a fantastic basis for a story. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, the other appealing thing to me about Father Brown, which is slightly different than Poirot. I mean, Poirot has obviously had that extraordinary, again, extraordinary long run of success. Yeah, massive. As a TV series. Yeah. You know, centred around David Suchet, who was sort of so brilliant in the role. That, But they're slightly more artificial stories, actually, yeah. at some levels. I mean, I'm, I'm a great fan of Christie. But I think they, they they have a 
a very distinctive milieu. Whereas yeah. I always feel the Father Brown stories, and especially in in the TV incarnation, which you're part of, has has a sense of a recognisable England. Yeah, you know, it's very much um, that it's got. Um, it, they represent far more class classes than, than than Christie, who tends to have either the upper class or the yeah, yeah. or the kind of undeserving poor. That you yeah. know, she doesn't quite have that sense of normality, which I like in the yeah. brand stories of, you know, everybody being there in English village life at a time when the world was changing. You know, I do think fifties the fifties is the great period of change in British society. Yeah. Know? post-war Labour government who start to change things. Yes. And then society reacts slowly to those changes. Yeah, and also, you know, from my point of view, my character is very emancipated, but, you know, you could argue it's easy to be emancipated when you've got money and status and you have less, you know, she's been educated, she is protected by her husband, she has money, she's got all these things, and she talks the talk and, and, and is... You know, she sees people and like all of those central characters is they're empaths and they react to the people that, the, you know, the guest story characters yeah. um, in a in a very truthful way. But what then is included is you get people from other classes who don't have that privilege, who don't necessarily have access to money in the way that she does. And you can see that they are still kept down by society or mm-hmm. given expected is less is expected of them which again is very true to that time uh, yeah. um and but is there is there is sadness there that you know there and also with, with the stories of race when they come up you know that you, you realize yes of course it is the windrush generation but there is enormous sort of racism within particularly in the Cotswolds that sort of middle England isn't it that you know yeah. there wasn't there weren't that many people of color for them to react to and um and those stories are told more and more it, it took them a while to sort of be included because i think the the writers were so loyal to the original chesterton but now they realise they're writing for an audience and, and audience. those stories need to be included. Yeah, yeah. No, and it is... So if the First World War sort of shapes the detective figures, yeah. then the Second World War shapes the society in which yes, you know, Father Brown is living. And there's a marvellous um, novel by Marguerite Lasky, who's much better known, if she's known at all now, as a kind of literary critic called The Village, right? which um, always makes me think of this time. And what that's really about is the kind of seismic effect effect of the second world war of that sense of people coming home to a world that didn't exist you know right. all the stately homes have been taken over by troops and they've been made into hospitals nobody had servants anymore everybody had was short of money people like lady felicia 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 yeah. were <laughs> having to adapt yeah, to yeah. change with the times the the uh you know the, Working class characters were asserting their rights. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the middle classes were uncertain of where they fitted in, and there's there's always this um, uh, thing that you in those novels of that period, sort of they're not necessarily the the great novels of the period, but they're the novels people read, and they do reflect very closely the actual social change going on at the time. Yeah. And then, you know, in case of Father Brown, give you a really, really lovely story 
you know, a detective story to solve yeah. on top of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've always been interested in that. I think, you know, when the historians of this period look back, they will look much more closely at the novels of Ian Rankin and Val McDiarmid and P.D. James than necessarily at, you know, the Booker Prize winners. Because I think they are the novels that show the small shifts in social status and change. Yeah. That reflect what we've really all lived through. But also, I guess, that thing of what drives somebody to solve crime or or solve yeah. murders. What is it in them that they're trying to heal? Who is it that they lost that they're trying to find? You know, and and that's the only thing with, with Christy sometimes is that, that I want to know more about the Miss Marbles. Yeah. I want to know more about Poirot. So what's so great about Chesterton is that you do you do get to know Father Brown. You do get to know what drives him yeah um and the you know that there is the, the the flambeau character played by john light that comes back every year and that he is absolutely in the original gk chesterton novels as a sort of arch uh thief nemesis right. um who sort of taunts father brown and, and and appears and this sort of you know so there's that sort of thread that of of loyalty to the original writing, but also, you know, I think to, for the audience that they know that there will always be the flambeau episode um, and, and his sort of great disguises and all the sort of yeah. heroics that he gets up to. And I think that's, you know, again, it's to do with, again, a, a crack in Father Brown that he almost obsessively follows this thief. Yeah. He becomes, you know, he is he is the one person he will never quite stop and and uh, encouraged to seek redemption for his crimes, yeah. although he has a little bit in the last couple of series, sort of yeah. started to see the error of his ways. But um, that's that's been going on for years now. <laughs> but when you say that, I mean, this is all why it's all so comfortable. But when you say that the other great tradition of detective fiction around this period is disguises that nobody can see through. Yes, yes, that's absolutely with, true. Actually, of course, starts with Conan Doyle and the idea that Sherlock Holmes can disguise himself as almost anything. Yes. But, but it is just this constant sense that people can turn up and they be disguised and nobody even half suspects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, uh, you know, they're not as they seem. But Marple, Ms. Marple's fascinating because I absolutely agree that you really you knew nothing if Chris, about her. If Chris, and Christie, interestingly, was a better writer. So she wrote these novels um, under the uh, pseudonym of Mary Westmacott. Right. Which are the absolute opposite of her detective novels because they're very light on plot. Right. And they are absolutely massive on psychological insight um, and social uh, observation of social change, yeah, yeah, and of marriages in particular, and they reveal this astonishing kind of insight, yeah, um, into women characters, yeah, and so she could do it. She absolutely had this ability. That they are the most, um, de- well, in many ways depressing, but in other ways utterly brilliant studies of failed marriage and right. f- and failed lives. Um, there's one called, I think it's Absent in the Spring, where a woman's stranded in a desert and comes to this recognition that her whole life, her whole safe English life has meant nothing. Wow. And it's a devastating book. And yet she never applied them to, she never applied that to the detective novels. And I always find that kind of fascinating. That somehow What's that she one felt, called? I think it's called Absent in the Spring. Right. Um Anyhow, the, the Mary Westmacott novels, they are all utterly brilliant. Um, and they 
I, I'm, I'm, I, I riveted by the, the notion that they were a separate way of writing. Yeah. Because Miss Marple is the character you long to know about. Yeah, you yeah. Know, why is she a spinster? Why is she so clever? Why, you know, has she been content to live her life in yeah. Mary Mead when, in fact, she's this kind of absolute brilliant mind that can solve any crime? Yeah. And she's a wonderful character, and yet she's... She's almost completely blank apart from a, you know, a few external characteristics. Yes. And it, and also is completely trusted by the police. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, it, you know, but these these detectives, these sort of private detectives who do nothing but show the police up for their uh, their faults. Yes, but they couldn't live without <laughs> Yeah, them. exactly, which is sort of quite an odd premise really but it but somehow works you know like you know murder she wrote the angela lansbury i mean you think how successful that was for years and years years. that felt like a sort of slightly americanized miss marple yeah Um, yeah well that really yes that took the idea of the writer didn't it the murder writer and yeah and i i used to love those and they're again comforting and and we had a long period when the children were young where we watched for reasons that really escape me now, we watched all the Columbo. Oh, really? Stories. Oh, he was brilliant, though. Yeah, he was utterly brilliant. And in fact, there's a new series called Poker Face, which right. is very similar in construction um, to Columbo, which I've really enjoyed and um, has the very clever thing that the the central character can detect a lie. I, I don't know how they'll sustain it, because if she is an infallible truth recognize her it's right. quite hard to sustain but the first series just sustained it brilliantly so that hooked us for a bit oh that's interesting what do you like about doing the father what are the things that i mean you say it's like coming home but as an actor what are the kind of things that you relish about it as an experience i suppose i think for me the great learning curve with it was understanding how physical comedy worked on screen Right. And in terms of how theatrical you could be on screen and and where that balance could be found between, you know, the advantages of the intimacy of a camera against creating quite a theatrical character that you could then play with her sort of outlandishness, you know... Uh, in parallel with her vulnerability. Right. Because ultimately she's vulnerable because she's an unhappy marriage and seeks pleasure and solace in the arms of other men. Mm. Uh, and that for a long time has got away with that because she is sort of overt in her sort of lustful ways. And, and um, yeah, I think... She's it, quite a fascinating character, really. She is she a fascinating character. I, I mean, the, one of the things one of the things we always um, do on set is ruminate on on possible storylines yeah. and go off in different directions. And, and uh, some producers more than others are, are up for hearing <laughs> our conclusions and, you know, some less so, obviously, because they've got many other things to do. But um, one of the ideas that I had for her, and this is all stuff in my head and I don't know if it's interesting to anybody but I thought that maybe that she was so she's Lord Montague's wife I wondered if she was his second wife right and uh whether the deal was that she 
wouldn't have children because he's got children from his first marriage and he just wasn't interested and whether or not. And then we had this whole, we were riffing on whether or not she did get pregnant and gave one, gave a child up for adoption and whether she rediscovered that or, you know, there's an interesting backstory there in terms of why a woman of her background and privilege and where sort of dynasty is so tantamount to their their existence Mm. why she doesn't have kids and what what is that story yeah and or whether there's a sort of mr chips thing happening and that actually you know the the the, her godchildren and her nieces and nephews and all the people that she takes under her wing are ultimately her children but i think that you know and then of course she goes off or went off to northern rhodesia at the end of series four and so there's that whole um, and I've sort of pitched various ideas to people who would listen to me over the years about things that could potentially um, bring the whole Rhodesian 1950s yeah, history yeah, into the story, which, of course, was fascinating. It was the beginning of Mugabe and yeah. there was so much going on yeah, there. And, yeah. um, but again, it's it's just too complicated and and also expensive and it's a different program really but but I do love it because I and but that's a testament to the the writing that it inspires you to sort of you know go off on different tangents in your head about what all those backstories are yeah and the richness of the writing and the richness of the assorted characters and I always get that sense you do also the the thing that you know like about Father Brown is that is the sense of the ensemble is the sense of the group being there and you know, as you say, having sort of slightly different roles per episode. Yeah. And, and where the weight lies, but always rooted in that set of characters who end up round a table yes. together. Yes, yes. Which I, I you know, it alter, you know, my, my dream in life always is to be with people I like around a table. Yeah, me and, too. <laughs> it's such a lovely. Yes, and that kitchen thing. is a great comfort. Yeah. I mean, the characters have shifted in the last couple of years. The the brilliant uh, John Burton and Tom Chambers are now uh, the policemen again, and then we've got yeah. Claudie Blakely and Ruby May Martinwood have come in as the the more regular central characters who run the presbytery yeah. and that sort of stuff. With with um, Mark Williams still playing uh, Father Brown, and so there's been a there's been a turnover of characters, yeah. but but the central ethos and warmth of the presbytery, yes, yeah. yeah, the centrifugal. Push yeah. is still is still yeah. the same. Well, I'm very glad it's back, and I'm, yeah. I'm really going to. I haven't watched series eleven, but I shall be. I shall be dipping in and out yeah. with great. I pleasure. haven't seen it yet either. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's so it's brilliant to talk about it a bit because yeah. it is. You know, a lot of people I think um, who listen know you from Father Brown, yeah. and so it's nice to talk about. Well, thank it you for change. asking me about it. And <laughs> series twelve starts filming soon as well. Oh. So. Amazing. It is amazing. And that's the other great thing about the longevity. Anyhow, we'll stop here. Let's say goodbye from me, Nancy Carroll, the actress. And goodbye from me, Sarah Crompton, the critic.